Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the Heritage Foundation's Executive Vice President, Kim Holmes. So, good afternoon, everyone. You're in for a real treat. We have another book by Newt Gingrich. It's really a pleasure to have all of you with us here this afternoon and to have Mr. Gingrich here is our distinguished guest and speaker. I'd like to thank all of you for, for joining us today. Uh, he, his uh, most recent book is Trump versus China, Facing America's Greatest Threat. Uh, I think he was here just a few months or so ago with his last book. Uh, I, one of the most prolific authors I've ever met in my life. Uh, he has uh, become not only uh, since he left uh, the House of Representatives many years ago, where he served 10 terms, He's become one of the most foremost explainers of America, of American purpose, of uh, President Trump. Uh, he is, uh, has, a, in addition to that active political career, he is a very keen observer and one of the, the nation's most thoughtful commentators. Uh, you see his uh, presence in print and television uh, and, of course, the many books that he has been writing. He always has this incredible talent. And I have to believe it's because he's an historian like I am. To be able to cut through some of the most complex issues and explain them to the American people in very clear and uncomplicated terms. But it's always a great deal of wisdom behind that. And uh, he has one of the most formidable memories of anybody I've ever met. We were just upstairs with the Board of Trustees. And, uh, and perhaps maybe it's because you read all the time, Mr. Speaker. Uh, about the, the most minutest details of an historical development that happened some 60 or 70 years ago. And he describes it not only because of the stories or through the stories, because he has all the details at the tip of his fingers. And now he has turned his uh, formidable intellect to the issue of China. China is in the news, of course, every day. Trade, politics, security, culture, diplomacy, technology, human rights, religious freedom, almost every major issue that faces America today, you will find the question of China central to that discussion. Uh, the issue of China, the threat of China, is comprehensive. Uh, it's across the board. It cuts across almost every aspect of American life. And for that reason, uh, the threat and uh, the challenge of China are something that, that we have never faced before. In his new book, Trump versus China, Mr. Gingrich uh, has presented his ideas and his recommendations on how to deal with this threat. And we look forward to hearing 
his, the details that are in the book and all some of the, the discussion that we will have after he's given a few remarks and also we'll be able to entertain some questions from all of you. So please welcome Newt Gingrich. Thank you. <clears throat> um, actually, I've got a loud one, so I don't, have, I don't have to be over there. Um, let me say, does this goof up your camera work if I do this? Are you guys happy? Um, let me explain a little bit. I, I had sort of the standard view of China that it was a relatively benign country and that gradually open markets would lead to an open political system and that everything was sort of work. And gradually, uh, I came to the conclusion I was just wrong, that, that the models I had in my head were not correct, and that, in fact, it was much more complicated than I had expected. And two of the incidents which got me to thinking about this will probably strike you as a little petty, but I think they were so vivid, I want to share them with you. Um, we were in Beijing, and uh, I had two friends with me who had worked on the National Security Council staff, both of them fluent in Mandarin. Both of them had gone to the University of Beijing. And we went to a place called the Pearl Market, which is about an eight or nine-story building downtown, uh, largely a tourist trap, but you can go buy pearls and things. <clears throat> if you go up around the sixth or seventh floor, uh, you can uh, buy pajamas. And at the time, my, my two grandchildren were an age where I thought it would be kind of cute to buy them pajamas. And so these two guys decided to coach me. And they said, uh, now whatever price the woman who runs the store gives you, come back with 10% of what she says. Again, I'm a classic American. You go to Walmart, they have a price. You pay it, you don't pay it. This idea we're going to negotiate is a little alien. So... She said she wanted 200 RMB, and I said, well, how about 20? Because I'm following my advisors. They said, she will now explain to you that you're going to bankrupt the store, force her children into starvation, and she can't believe you would do this. And then she'll then give you a new number. So she came back like with 180. And they said, go up to 25. Well, as an American, I'm very uncomfortable doing this. <clears throat> so gradually we keep talking. And after 40 minutes, <laughs> I get the pajamas for 50. And my two advisors are disgusted. <laughs> and they said, she, may, she makes a profit at 30. And it's absurd that you paid her 50. Now, the reason that mattered to me, it was, it was a lot of fun and very interesting, but I thought to myself, if you have a culture in which negotiating is fun in an art form, and you're dealing with a U.S. trade representative who wants to get a deal, all of the underlying biases are in favor of the negotiator who likes to negotiate, and that our models don't fit interacting with the Chinese model. Now, the second example was, in a way, more sophisticated. A good friend of mine had done a leverage buyout of the second largest battery company in the United States. 
He produced really big batteries for nuclear-powered submarines, and he was the primary provider for Walmart. And very early in the process of China opening up, he had decided that he wanted to go and build a factory in China. <clears throat> so he goes over. And for three years, he's from Minneapolis. They negotiate with the trade minister. And my friend would say something in English. The translator would translate it into Chinese. Uh, the minister would think about it. Then the minister would say something in Chinese. The interpreter would, say, would explain it in English. This goes on for three solid years. At the end of three years, they get an agreement. And so they have a big dinner to celebrate. And they're sitting at dinner, and the minister is sitting across the street, this, the table, and looks at him and says, how about them golden gophers? And he says, what? This guy's not spoken English in three years. And the guy goes, yeah. He said, I went to the University of Minnesota. I was the ball boy for the football team. <laughs> now, that level of role-playing is beyond the American model. And so those two are among the things that made me start thinking that this is a much more complex culture. Now, I knew that a little bit because many, many years ago, I'd studied Sun Tzu and I'd studied Mao, and I had some notion of how very different the Chinese approach to conflict is from the Western approach. But I then began looking at things like, like playing Go and, and the degree to which Go is a totally alternative universe from playing chess. And in fact, if you study playing Go, you'll understand the Chinese South, the China Sea model almost perfectly because it's a perfect example of, of uh, the territorial style that's inherent in Go. So I began looking at all this. And then I, I realized watching the rise of Xi Jinping that to whatever degree they had, had a brief period of thinking about becoming less dictatorial, that that was over. And that he was using the idea of cleaning up corruption as a way of cleaning up his opponents. And that the police state was getting worse, much worse. Partly because of technology, but also partly out of fear. And so I had believed, I was, and I'll be quite candid, I was one of the people who believed when Deng Xiaoping, who was then the leader spiritually of the country, although not technically, when he went on the southern tour in 92, and he made the great speeches about the fact that he was concerned that, that they had to open up the economy, they had to create wealth, um, because the system was going to collapse if they didn't. And he made the famous quote that he didn't care whether it was a black cat or a white cat, he cared whether or not it caught rats. And in fact, if you go to Nanjiang, which Clist and I visited a few years ago, there's a huge bridge, and it has two 30-foot-tall cats, one black and one white, at the entrance to the bridge. Well, I thought that was the potential first step towards first the economy gets freed up, then the political thing gets freed up, and it was, we were just wrong. I mean, I was for China entering the World Trade Organization because I thought this would be part of learning, learning to be a rules-processing kind of country. Which is wrong, just nuts. Because the Chinese model was, in fact, to figure out how to exploit and violate the rules, not how to operate with them. So, 
what it turned out is, as we got in working on this book, uh, and I should say that Claire Christensen is back there, was my co-author, and it was enormously helpful. I suddenly realized, and I felt a little bit stupid, that Deng Xiaoping was a founding member of the Chinese Communist Party, spent a year in Moscow studying at the Lenin University on how to run a totalitarian hierarchical system, and was totally committed to the dictatorship. But his, and his, his equation was, <clears throat> I have to get to prosperity so people will tolerate the dictatorship, not so we can change the dictatorship. And that's why when Tiananmen Square occurred, he was among the toughest people saying kill them. Because he'd watched Gorbachev and he'd watched Khrushchev in the, in the 50s, and he realized that if you, you start being soft, the whole system's going to fall apart. He'd also lived through Mao and, and the Cultural Revolution, which was a nightmare. So I suddenly began to realize that the, 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 the system we're competing with is profoundly different than our understanding of it, and that it's further delusional because we have a number of people who have become billionaires dealing with China, and, and they deal with China at a level of so much profit that they don't want to think about the nature of China. So the other day, Mayor Bloomberg gave us an interview in which he explained that China is really not a dictatorship. Now, how you deal with a million people in concentration camps in western China, the crushing of the Tibetan Buddhist culture, the hunting down of the Falun Gong breathing society, which, by the way, I find to be the weirdest part of this whole thing. The Falun Gong is essentially a breathing society that seeks better health through measured processes of breathing. But there are so many people who belong to Falun Gong that the sheer number scares the communists. So they hunt these people down. So breathing wrong can get you disappeared. I did a podcast, I do podcasts every Sunday, did a podcast the other day with a guy from, uh, who teaches at, at Hunter, who is Chinese, who was disappeared. And by disappeared, I mean the police pick you up on the street, they don't tell your lawyer, they don't tell your family, you're gone. And then eventually, if you agree to do a videotape saying you were guilty and they were right, they release you. They recently disappeared the highest paid actress in the world. And for six months, she was missing. And then she agreed to do a little video about how guilty she was. They released her. But the underlying message was simple. If we can disappear her, imagine what we could do to you. And last week or the week before in Nepal, uh, Xi Jinping, speaking about uh, what's happening in Hong Kong, said anyone who believes they can violate Chinese sovereignty, I will, I will break their bones and crush their body. And I thought, even for a Trump tweet, that'd be pretty tough. And that, he just said it in passing. He said, let me, let me explain how serious I am. So anyway, I look forward to questions. Uh, I'm exactly on time. Which side do you want me to sit on? That's fine. Okay. Thank you. Speaker, thank you again for being here today. I'm sure the audience is eager to get some questions to you, but I thought I would start off by asking a couple of questions. You have in your book uh, a chapter on how China uses soft power. And it's, uh, it's pervasive. It's across the board. Uh, it's not only in the Confucius Institutes, but it's also 
influence on Hollywood, uh, and of course uh, they have access to our media. Uh, they have uh, the ability to go on Twitter and condemn us and our culture and our our way of life, and yet uh, they have. Uh, we do not have the inability, or the Chinese people do not have the inability to use Twitter that way. There is a lack of reciprocity across the board, not only in media but in other aspects of our relations. Could you uh, talk to a little bit about what you say in your book about that? Well, yeah, I, mean, I think you have to recognize that um, as a Leninist mm -hmm. system, they really value ideas. I mean, it's important to remember that the, the Lenin and Trotsky and Stalin came out of a system where, where thought mattered. In fact, if you uh, read uh, Stalin's history, short history of the Bolshevik Revolution, which is almost unreadable, um, you'll see that there's this real continuous emphasis on winning battles of ideas. So much, much more than we are, uh, they are frightened by any competitive idea. And they, they value highly finding ways to impose or to have adopted, not necessarily impose, uh, their ideas. And I think that you see that. You know, I, I saw a little note the other day that Tom Cruise in the, uh, in, in the new version of Top Gun they took two flags. I think, I think it was Taiwan and Japan. He was wearing flags on his flight jacket, and they're now not on the flight jacket for the movie. Uh, this sort of thing. I mean, they, great attention to detail, great attention to imposing their version of reality. Uh, TikTok, which is a wildly popular uh, teenage device, has nothing about Tiananmen Square, uh, has almost nothing about Hong Kong, uh, because they just censor it. It becomes a non. It actually is. If you, if you read Orwell's 1984, you really begin to understand the internal mindset of the Central Party. One of the things about dealing with the Chinese challenges is that it's not only is it pervasive, but it evolves in some ways quite slowly, and our perception of what's going on is very often behind the reality of it. But you mentioned upstairs the MBA controversy. And, uh, and how it was bringing attention to millions of Americans who otherwise may not know anything about what's going on with China to their attention. Yeah, I, I thought that that was a, a mistake on the Chinese part, in part because for the very first time, millions of people who aren't going to read my book and they're not going to pay attention to news coverage, but they're sitting at home, they're watching ESPN, and they're going, this is weird. What is this all about? And so my guess is that the the notion of Chinese interfering with American companies uh, spread much more dramatically in the four or five days after the NBA controversy uh, than it had before that. And I think that's one of the challenges they've got is, you know, in the long run, most people aren't particularly excited by being in a dictatorship. Well, if you're not the dictator, it's okay if you're the dictator. Uh, and so I think that, that part, part of what happens is that they're just so clumsy that they eventually irritate people and cause their own problems. Fifteen years ago, when I was in the State Department working uh, with the international organizations in the UN, China was considered to be a poor developing country. They paid very little into the UN system. They were always going around telling the world how poor they were. Well, that's no longer the case. China right. is a, now becoming or is a rich country. They have a lot of money to invest not only in their military, but increasingly in technology, in advanced technology. And there are some areas where in artificial intelligence and quantum uh, computing where they're actually starting to move ahead of us. 
What kind of a challenge do they represent to us technologically? Well, I mean, first of all, they still claim and are still ranked as a poor country in a lot of the different international organizations. So they still get at the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank. Uh, they're still being treated as though they're very, very poor when they aren't anymore. Um, I think that there are three parts to the Chinese technological challenge. Um, the first is the number of Chinese students who come to the US. Uh, and, and in some cases, there, there was a recent case of two people who had been here for about 30 years uh, teaching and doing research and uh, in a very advanced field involving uh, pharmaceuticals. And all of a sudden, one morning, uh, they went home, and lo and behold, they happened to have exactly the same lab facilities with exactly the same equipment. Uh, and they happened to take with them all the intellectual property they developed over the last 30 years. So that within a matter of like two weeks, they were fully competitive with the company they'd worked with in the US. So part of it is that we actually train a lot of folks, uh, and then there are hundreds of thousands of Chinese who get educated here. Uh, this, the second is um, that they just steal it. I mean, when, when uh, one of the things which moved me towards writing this book, when, when James Clapper, who was Obama's director of national intelligence, said they stole between four and $500 billion a year in intellectual property, I mean, for Obama's director of national intelligence to say that, I thought was a sign that this was really spiraling out of control in a, in a, in a serious way. But the third part is that, that they have directed intelligent, substantial investments. Uh, for example, in, in, uh, in looking at uh, hypersonic uh, missiles and potentially hypersonic aircraft, they've built the largest wind tunnel in the world. Now, you know, we... We can't complain because they made the investment and we didn't, but it gives them an ability to test in real time various uh, configurations that we literally can't test right now. And so I think that's the kind of thing where, you, again, I have, I have enormous respect for the professionalism, the momentum, uh, and the intelligence of, of uh, the Chinese system. I, this is, I, I happen to think they're dangerous and I think they would, if they were to succeed, they'd represent the end of our way of life. But I, but I don't deal with them like I think they're stupid or slow. I, I think that they are, are, they've earned being considered very, very serious, competent competitors. If you go back 15 years ago to how even conservatives were thinking about, the, about China, there were two basic ideas. One was is that, and you mentioned this in your remarks about the international order, we wanted to make China a stakeholder in that international order, in that system. And the expectation and hope was is that as they developed, they may want to do that because they wanted to trade, and that's, that's, that was the <laughs> idea back then. The other was is that if they got richer, they would create a middle class that in the Western model would create a demand for democracy. And then Tiananmen Square happened. Uh, and, uh, and clearly, those two assumptions are, have not been borne out uh, that we had some 15 years ago. What do you think we need to do now to adjust the way we look at China, even as conservatives, the way we look at the market, the way we look at trade, the way we look at technology transfers, what is it we need to do to change our mindset to deal with the Chinese challenge today? Well, look, I think that, and, and I was part of that, as I said so, earlier, I was, so I was part of that analysis. <laughs> so were we. Uh, and I would say there were a couple of mistakes. One is, um, a function of scale 
and intensity. Uh, we didn't take into account, this is, this is a continent-sized country of a billion, 400 million people with 5,000 years of history. So the idea that they want to all become little Americans, they would find appalling. Uh, they mostly want to be Chinese. And they're very proud of having gotten past what they call the century of humiliation. Remember, legitimately, if you're Chinese, you can claim that up until about 1800, you were the wealthiest, most advanced country in the world. That the explosion of European capabilities in the period about 1500 to 1800 gradually allowed the Europeans to militarily and in manufacturing production be more competitive. But that, in many ways, is, is, a, is a passing moment. So in their mind, they had what they call the century of humiliation, where these outer barbarians who are clearly unworthy uh, of dealing with China uh, had a period of military capacity. And that ended, in their mind, in 1949. You could argue it ended in part in 45 with the expulsion of the Japanese, but then really ended in 49 with the emergence of the People's Republic. So in a way, there's a legitimate, authentic Chinese. I mean, if you're, if you're allowed to be proud to be an American, you're allowed to be proud to be Chinese, which is actually something Trump has said in several speeches at the UN and elsewhere, that his idea of national sovereignty is for everybody. So it's okay. He expects you to negotiate for your country, and he expects to negotiate for his country. Uh, and I think that's a part of where we were wrong. I think the other part of where we were wrong, and, and I, this would make a very interesting study by somebody, um, I, I just watched a, a very, very interesting Netflix eight-part series on Trotsky done actually by a Russian firm and in Russian, uh, so you're reading subtitles. And it was fascinating because it carried you back to the revolution of 1905, which failed, and then the revolution of 1917 and the Civil War and so forth and the rise of Stalin. And we sort of, because we're, an, we're largely a non-intellectual country, I mean, it's just, it's, we, don't, we don't have a habit of thinking that knowing things is really important unless they either make you money or help you win a baseball game. Um, communism was an inherently idea-oriented intellectual model. In addition, Confucianism and the Mandarinate and the whole notion of the annual exams to become a government servant, China had an enormous investment in learning on a scale no other country in the world could match. I mean, you could maybe make an argument that Judaism has a similar passion, but, but it's a much smaller base. But see, so you, you have a huge number of people who have a history of annual exams going back to about 200 BC. And you have an elite which picks up in the 1920s this whole concept of Leninism and Stalinism. And, and we tend to forget, and I certainly didn't know a lot of this until I, I really buckled down and really went back and started doing basic research. When Khrushchev has the famous secret speech denouncing Stalin in 56, Mao and Joe and Lyon, those guys, are appalled, not because he's going to shake the fabric, but because they're Stalinists. They loved Stalin. They, they loved his books. They routinely read his stuff. And believe me, 
If you can, I, I challenge you, if you can read the short history of the Bolshevik Revolution, which is 900 pages, and not fall asleep 45 times, I mean, you have a great capacity for reading complicated stuff. And these guys love this stuff. And so they're sitting around going, Khrushchev's a heretic. He's breaking up the true faith. And then, of course, they watched it not work because shortly after his big speech, the Hungarians rebelled, the Czechs rebelled, the Poles rebelled. It's all a mess. And they'll tell you, see, see, stupid, stupid. And I think we forgot that communism is an extraordinarily powerful working model for acquiring and implementing power. And the core government of China is a Leninist communist government, absolutely dominated by the party, which allows people to get rich as long as they remember who's in charge. And the second they start to forget who's in charge, they get disappeared. I mean, it's a very straightforward relationship. You can have a nice yacht, you can do really well, cross us and you'll die. And so mostly they obey. They think, not a bad deal. Okay, let's turn to the audience. We have uh, two microphones on the here. Could you please identify yourself and uh, please keep it to one question? Yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Preston Knoll, Tradition, Family, and Property. I attended a, a presentation by someone from the Pentagon some months ago and asked a question about the, the crashing of some um, American ships over near China. As I had read an article that indicated maybe there was more to this than met the eye, that it was probably a trend and not something that was just a happenstance. And he didn't give me a very good answer, but afterwards I went up and asked him, about that, and he said, when war breaks out, our sailors are going to go blind and deaf. In other words, they have some special weapons. Are you familiar with this? Have you heard anything about this? Well, it depends on what you mean by blind and deaf. He said blind and deaf. Uh, the Chinese routinely practice with lasers in Djibouti and have used lasers against our pilots. We know that's true. Uh, they, they probably have a series of, of capabilities like that. I'm, I'm not saying they don't, uh, but I don't think we should be surprised by that. I mean, uh, this is part of preparing for modern war. Okay, yes, ma'am. In the front here. Uh, I'm a reporter with Shenzhen TV. My question is. Uh, Louder, please. Okay. I'm a reporter with Shenzhen TV. My question is, um, with escalation of the dispute between U.S. and China, but if we view these things uh, from a different angle, can this actually be an opportunity for China to, if China survives in its competition, can China, it's an uh, opportunity for China to promote its um, image to the world stage that other countries will think, well, China's really rising, that America is really taking China's um, rising seriously. Do you think China's re re uh, ready for that? Thank you. Well, I, I think the, the, the key challenge, the key challenge in China's image is China. Okay. Uh, and I, I recently saw a senior Chinese leader, and I was trying to do research for the book, and I wanted to get their version of some things. And so I said to him, can, can you explain why you have over a million people in concentration camps in Western China? And without 
changing his facial expression. He said, well, you know, you really shouldn't think of them as concentration camps. You should think of them as boarding schools. Now, it's really hard to build a positive image when you have boarding schools that, are, that have people who escape from them who explain that they're concentration camps. Um, the same thing is in Tibet. They won't let us go to Tibet for a practical reason. They're trying to destroy the Tibetan Buddhist culture, and they don't particularly, you know, I mean, they got really mad uh, at Richard Gere for making a movie about Tibet, and, they, and for a while they wouldn't let Brad Pitt's movies in uh, because of a movie he'd made about Tibet. Um, so it's a little tricky to come and say, you know, I mean, what, the, what the current Chinese government would like is to be able to project um, an image of the China they wished you would believe in and then have you not ask questions. And I think in, it's not the way the world works. I mean, um, not just in the U.S., but in general, uh, there are lots of people who go around and poke and say, well, that's not quite true. And, of course, that's why they have a challenge in Hong Kong because on the one front, they really don't want to create a massively bigger Tiananmen Square. On the other front, it's really dangerous for the dictatorship to have all these people running around being free. And I, I think Xi Jinping has got real challenges of trying to figure out how does he solve this. I don't know if that's at all helpful. Sir, right here. Uh, Mr. Genghi, my name is Sufi Lagari with the Sindhi Foundation. Uh, America counter Russia because Russia was going to different countries with ideology, communism. China is going to different countries with money and to make <clears> money. Right. I went to Kenya, the roads, everything, and, but Kenyan people were feeling like it, that they are taking over everything. I went to Sri Lanka, they're taking their everything. In Pakistan, like uh, now is Kaluni, and but I don't know how to America counter in different countries like in Pakistan, the Sindhis and Baloch are friends of America, but China is over there, like uh, with the government, or even like Uyghurs. I don't know how America will going to counter to China with their money and their interest, because they want to make money. Sure. They were introvert, but now they are very aggressively extrovert in uh, South America, in Africa, in Asia, everywhere. And I'm really a fan of your ideology and your books. I read your books when not in, in America. I was reading your books and like following you from the long time. I want to hear from you because you are right, greatest threat. How to counter them in those countries? Thank well, you. I, look, I think first of all, the, this is part of their difference with the Soviets. They're vastly richer than the Soviets ever dreamed of. They have more resources that they could share. Um, they do have habits that hurt them. They tend to uh, loan com company countries money they can't pay back. Uh, they tend to bring in Chinese workers to do all the work. Uh, so the and, and they tend in some places to do pretty shoddy work. So the you know, so the bridge falls down and so that sort of thing. But uh, as part of what I said earlier, these are this is a very formidable system. I I think what they've done, for example on 5G technology for the internet and on the rise of Huawei is, is, is a great case study. I mean, there is no American competitor to Huawei. 
And this is a worldwide company. I think it has 460,000 employees. Uh, it is very formidable and uh, gives them a very high likelihood that they will define the future of the Internet, not the Americans. I mean, it's, it is a, if that happens, it will be a profound strategic defeat on a historic scale. And we have no notion of it. I mean, it is, it's amazing to me how incompetent our bureaucracies have been. So I, I think that we're, we are in for a very deep, very real challenge that's going to go on for a long time. The only, the only question is, and the NBA is a good minor example, uh, or the way they deal with churches or the way they deal with Tibetan Buddhists. I mean, most I had, I had an Australian diplomat say to me, more people would like to join the American club than the Chinese club because in the end, freedom is just more fun than tyranny. And I think that's one of the challenges they're going to face. The Russians used to have this problem. They, they would spend lots of money in Africa. They would bring people to Lumumba University in Moscow, and Africans would realize how many Russians were racist, and they would go home more anti-Russian than before they went there. So I think you have to wait and see how it evolves. Uh, let's go back over here in the middle. Yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. Speaker, for coming to speak to us. My name is Caleb. I'm, I'm an intern here at Heritage. Um, so with a lot of the Chinese companies being state-owned enterprises, uh, do you think it would be effective for the U.S. to regulate their access to U.S. economic spaces like the New York Stock Exchange? I think that's a very good question. We've been working with Roger Robinson, who uh, is, is one of the most knowledgeable analysts of the Chinese financial and industrial system. Uh, and, and the only thing I would modify on what you just said is every Chinese company is in the end a state company. There are no genuinely private companies in China. It's not possible. Every one of them has to have a member of the Communist Party on their board of directors. And if, if the state issues an order, they will obey the order. If they don't obey the order, they will disappear. So this idea that where we have demarcations of this is government, this is private, uh, it, it, this is private until the government says it's not, or until the party, not the government, until the party says it's not. Uh, and anytime the party wants to, to decide, you know, so for example, Huawei says, well, they're really not going to steal any information from all these systems that are building all over the world. And that's absolutely true until the government tells them to do it. And the moment the government tells them to do it, they're either going to steal or they're going to go to jail. So it's a, it's a very interesting challenge. Mr. Speaker, I'm Stacey Xu from Taiwan Central News Agency. Uh, Vice President Pence just delivered a strongly worded uh, speech on U.S.-China relation, and he talked about uh, Xinjiang and then um, Hong Kong and Taiwan. Uh, but at the same time, he also mentioned that he would like the U.S. would like to have a practical negotiation with China because they're going to sign a trade deal. So, in your view, do you think this is kind of a carrot and stick approach, or are the uh, the U.S. government is going to separate politics and economy in the future, and do you think that would work? Thank you. I'm not, I'm not foolish. Can you expand on your question for a minute? Give her the mic back. Oh, I mean, uh, because at the same time, uh, the U.S. Is, is criticizing the U.S. for a human rights violation, 
and how uh, this country has um, infringed upon other people's rights and freedom in Hong Kong. But at the same time, because the U.S. wanted to uh, try to sign this trade deal with the Right. With China, so do you think that kind of approach, you know, characteristic would work? I, look, I, I suspect, um, being Americans, we will be cheerfully contradictory, and we'll do both. I mean, the, the Treasury Department recently has sanctioned a series of companies who are in, in, in save, who are selling technology of repression, at the same time that we're trying to negotiate a trade deal, and I suspect. Uh, that will continue down a road that is not automatically one or the other. But I, I doubt very much if we will ultimately in the long run back off on our concern for human rights uh, because I think it's, it's, it's a, sort of at the core of our identity. My name is Aiden Keith. Uh, thank you for coming out here. Um, my question is, the U.S. has had, the Trump administration has had a rather muted response to the Hong Kong protests. Um, do you think that the Trump administration should have a more, uh, should more actively support the protesters? Yeah, I, I think the United States should take the position that uh, we are in favor of human rights and that we're in favor of the rights of political freedom and that we would uh, strongly oppose uh, the use of force to repress them. I think that's who we ought to be. I think that's who we ought to be everywhere in the world. And then you suffer consequences from that. But at the same time, you're also setting a standard worldwide uh, for the kind of world you want to create, which is a world in which people live in freedom and, and uh, where they have legal rights and where they're protected uh, from the government and they're protected from uh, dictators. Right here. Speaker Jeff Steele with the American Legion. We have read your recent Hill op-ed on the thrift saving program, and I have a question about that. Um, <coughs> it raises the question of how we invest in China and China invests here. Okay. The piece was not clear as to where you go down that road if you say, okay, not the TSP in that index or not the New York Stock Exchange. This can't be Cold War II because the Chinese are so embedded in the world system, unlike the Soviets, which was firewalled off. Um, if there's not decoupling, since it's not possible, is the TSP proposal just not the right way to go, and what does the end game look like here? Well, I, I think the question is whether or not you think uh, American capital should be used to uh, accelerate the growth of Chinese companies. And I think, that, and particularly Chinese companies that are involved in activities which involve uh, the suppression of human rights. And I think that the feeling is that the, the easier we make it for the Chinese to raise capital, uh, the easier we make it uh, for China to grow economically in ways that ultimately are going to come back and bite us. Could I ask you the last question? As conservatives, we want to be supporter of free trade and the free market. We have historically made a national security exception to free trade when we felt that the commerce or trade threatened the security of the country. Can you help us as conservatives think through or think about 
how President Trump is using tariffs and the threat of tariffs in his efforts to get a trade deal with China. Uh, since tariffs are, in the end, <coughs> a, a tax ultimately uh, that Americans pay. Or a tax that Chinese pay. It depends on whether or not they have to well, keep we both their prices pay. low enough. We both pay. Um, look, I, I, first of all, I think the idea of describing free trade with China is nonsense. There is no free trade with China. It's a highly controlled economy. They control the points of access. They, they, they rig the game. They, you know, they allow you in long enough to build a factory so you can train their workers so they can steal all your intellectual property to build a competing factory down the street. Um, the, idea, the idea that you can have free trade with a country with, with this kind of a dictatorship is, is non-entity. I mean, it's a, it's a slogan. It's not a reality. Uh, you know, if you could go to the Chinese and say, and in fact, an easy way to solve it would be to say, we're going to apply exactly the same rules to Chinese companies that they apply to us. So you can't be in the U.S. unless you have an American on your board of directors. You have to meet our standard of transparency, et cetera. And I think you'd find pretty rapidly uh, the Chinese wouldn't be here at all. Uh, so I, I think we don't want to have slogans replace thinking. And I think we want to say to countries, if you, if you want genuine free trade and expand the scale of the market within which we have productivity and we have choice, that's terrific. But don't come and tell us we should have free trade while you rip us off. And I think that a lot of the last 20 years has been can't. And, and, and frankly, if you were a billionaire in New York and you were leveraging all this stuff, it's a pretty good deal. I mean, you, you read some of these books on China, they're by guys who had a really big economic interest in, in winning, but, but they weren't necessarily winning in a way that strengthened America. Mr. Speaker, thank you for spending the afternoon with us. We wanted to give a little more time so you could sign some books before you have to depart. It's really a great honor and pleasure to have you with us this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.